Shalom and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com and our study of Sefer Tvarim. My name is Menachem Liptag. Today we begin our study of Parshat Ki Shir number one out of six. In today's shir we study from chapter 21, verses 10 through 23. There will be four topics. The first topic is a famous case of an Eshet Defator, someone finding a beautiful woman while fighting a battle and wanting to take her for a wife. That's verses 10 through 14. Then we have the story of what happens when you have two sons from different wives and who gets the birthright. That's verses 15 through 17. Then we have the story of a son who's gone off the derech. That's verses 18 through 21. And finally, in verses 23 through 23, we have a discussion of what to do with the body of a person who was executed by the court system and how to treat that body. Before we begin our study, I'd like to note that we are now at a transition point in the last section of Sefer Dvarim. Recall that up until now, we've been following how the laws followed more or less the order of the Ten Commandments. For example, most recently, we had the laws of the holidays and the seven-year Shemitah cycle and the seven years of Anevet Ivri. And that was an expansion of the commandment of Shabbat. We had laws about leadership, which was an expansion of honoring your parents. We had the Navi, we had the judges, we had the king, and we had the Kohanim and Levim. And then we had the expansion of the laws of Lot Tzach, of Thou Shalt Not Murder. That was the laws of cities of refuge, the death penalty for an idol worshiper, the laws of going to war. And finally, we ended with what happens when there's an unsolved murder, the case of Egla Rufa. Now that that topic is more or less finished, we'd expect to find now the next commandment, which would be Lot Tinaf, not to commit adultery, or an expansion of that idea. And therefore, the first law, the law of an Eshe Ifatar, is a very fitting transition because it relates to war, which was the last topic, but also relates to lotinaf, marriage relationships. In that manner, today's shur follows the pattern we've seen so far in Sefer Dvarim. However, most of the laws that we've seen so far in Sefer Dvarim have been laws for a nation, and not necessarily dealing with individual personal behavior. In today's shur, we will see many laws that for sure deal with day-to-day life of a person, but we also try to discuss how they relate to our national character as well. Let's begin now with chapter 21, verse 10, Perach of Aleph, Pasuk Yud. When you go to war, or should you go to war against your enemies, and should Hashem, your God, give your enemy in your hands, and should it be that you take captives? This opening verse pretty much sets the stage for what is bound to happen when people go to war. Pasuk Yud Aleph, verse 11. Then should you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you have desire for her, and you want to take her for a wife for yourself. As Ebenezer points out, doesn't mean, and you took her for a wife, but you want to take her for a wife. This is an introduction to what's going to happen, and here's the process of how you take her for a wife. Verse 12. First, you must bring her into your home. She must shave her head and do something with her nails. We will discuss the different opinions among the commentators in regard to what she does with her nails, but to appreciate that argument, let's read first the next verse, and then we'll discuss all these acts together. Pasuk Gimel, verse 13. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity. She should dwell in your home. 
and she should cry or mourn for father and mother for a month. And afterwards, you may come to her and have relations, and then she will be your wife. Among the commentators, we will see a wide range of opinions in regard to the necessity for all these actions. But if I want to sort of divide them into different categories, the question is, is it all about him or all about her? Are we worried about him? Does the Torah really prefer that he not marry this woman? And this is just a bad idea, but the Torah is sort of giving in to his desire. And we're trying to do many actions that would take that desire away, trying to make her look unfitting, not to look so pretty, and the hope is he will change his mind and not marry her. That's one approach. Or is it all about her? And the assumption is he's going to marry her, but we care about her feelings. And we don't want him simply to take a woman right out of captivity. She needs time to take care of herself. She needs time to mourn her family, who most likely died in battle, to mourn her old way of life. And therefore, I need to give her a month for psychological reasons to deal with herself, and only afterwards you can marry her for the sake of a proper marriage. Let's begin by following Rashi's approach, and we'll see how in general, the Torah, according to Rashi, is frowning on this marriage, or this potential marriage, and trying to do everything to discourage the man so that he should not want to marry her. First of all, Rashi points out that these verses are talking about what's called a Mechemet Rashut. It's not talking about the war against the seven nations, because we were told earlier, when we fight the seven nations, we have to wipe out everything, and we can't take anyone captive. Therefore, it must be talking about when we go to war for expansion, and hence taking people captive is permitted. Then in verse 11, where it says, Rashi explains, The Torah was talking against the person's evil inclination. If the Torah did not want him to marry her, it should just say it's forbidden. But Rashi explains, the Torah is assuming even if the Torah said it was forbidden, he would do it anyhow. He would not be able to overcome his evil inclination, his Yetzirah. And therefore, Chumash is giving an avenue through which to sort of calm him down, wait a little bit. So if there was a prohibition to take her at all, he would most probably break that prohibition. But if there's an avenue through which he can take her, and might be waiting for a month, then he'd be more patient and wait. But again, the hope, according to Rashi, is that once we're waiting, and after he comes down after the battle, and after he sees how ugly she is, once he shaves her head and everything, then hopefully he will change his mind. Then on verse 12, when it says she must do her nails, it means to grow them so they look ugly. The assumption being that well-cared-for nails look nice, but if someone lets their nails grow wild, they will look ugly. Then in verse 13, Rashi assumes that the clothes that she was wearing when she was taken captive were beautiful clothing to entice the men, and now she has to take off that beautiful clothing and put on instead simple clothing again in the hope that this will take away his desire from her. And then finally, when she has to remain in his home and cry for her parents, being in that state, according to Rashi, that he will see her crying in his own home, and again, that will convince him not to marry her. Ramban first quotes Rashi and begs to differ, and he claims that the main verse is The main thing she needs to do is mourn for father and mother in her old life for a month, and part of the mourning process is shaving her head. And part of the mourning process is cutting her nails. That seems to have been an ancient custom of what people did in mourning. 
And the whole purpose of shaving her head and cutting her nails is to allow her a month to mourn for her family and parents. And the same thing as far as her clothing, taking off her clothing of captivity, instead putting on clothing of a mourner. And then she should sit in your home like a widow. Then Ramban continues to explain that the reason we need to do this is because he's taking her against her own will, and therefore she needs time to deal with herself and deal with her loss. It's not proper for the man to take her as a wife in that state of mind. As he summarizes, And the principle is that she's in mourning because she must leave her old religion and now moving to a new nation, to a new people. Then Ramban quotes the Rambam, Maimonides in Moreno Vuchim, in his guide for the perplexed, who explains that this entire process is lechemla aleha, because we feel sorry for her. Rambam claims it's all for psychological reasons to give her time to calm down, to find herself. And he continues to explain that during this month, he's not permitted to force her to do anything and not to have any relations with her. So Maimonides clearly holds it's all about her. According to Rashi, it's clear it's all about him, and we're trying to convince him not to marry her. And Ramban is somewhere in between. We're clearly we're worried about her, but we're worried about him marrying someone who is not accepting Judaism, and therefore we're giving her a month to get rid of her old way of life and give her time to slowly adjust to her Judaism. So we care about both about her and about him. But not necessarily her psychological state of mind, but more so her religious state of mind. And again, Maimonides is worried about her psychological state of mind. That's not the proper way to treat a human being. And therefore, I need to give her time to deal with her past, deal with herself. And only after a month, when she's calmed down and willing to accept him, then he can marry her. The Ramban also points out the rabbinic opinion that this whole process is only if she's not willing on her own immediately to accept Judaism. But if she's a proper Gioret, she wants to convert. And it's her idea to want to become part of the Jewish people, then it's permitted to take her right away and we need not go through this entire process. This process is only taking someone from captivity who had no interest in becoming Jewish and he is more or less forcing her to become his wife and therefore I need to give her that month to convince her to get rid of her ways of idol worship and only afterwards to be able to marry her. This background will help us appreciate the final line of this law, Pasuk Gedal at verse 14, should it come to pass that he does not want her, he must release her outright. It is not permitted to sell her for money. It is not permitted to mistreat her because you have already afflicted her, assuming because you made her go through this whole process of these 30 days of shaving her head and not taking care of herself. So she's been so humbled by this, that's enough suffering, and therefore, if you don't want to take her for a wife, leave her free, you can't sell her, you don't own her. Either you have to marry her and treat her properly like a wife, or you have to let her free. You can't be in middle stage where you have her like a slave and do whatever you want with her, and treat her like a shivcha. That's totally forbidden. And the commentators, there's also a discussion, what is her status in regards to her Judaism? But it seems like once he doesn't take her, that she's free to go back to her homeland, back to her people. If she wants to be Jewish, she would still need to go through a proper giur, proper conversion. She doesn't have a status as a Jew yet, unless he decided to marry her. On the other hand, Ramban points out, if she decides she wants to remain Jewish and marry someone else, she has that option. But of course, she would have to go through proper conversion.
to finish that process. In verse 15, we have a new case, and Rashi and many commentators talk about the logical progression of topic. And now the man has two wives, one he's going to like, one he's not going to like. There'll be children from both marriages, and then the question will arise, who has the right to the firstborn? So let's begin now in verse 15. Should a man have two wives? One he loves and one he hates, or some people say one who he likes less. Not necessarily he loves one and hates one, but rather he has a favorite. The favorite is called the Ahuva. The Snua is the wife who is less favorite. And they both give birth to male children the one he loves, and the one he loves less. But it turns out that the eldest son is the child of the wife who he likes less. Pasuk in verse 16. Then it shall be on the day that he wills what he has to his sons, most likely when it's time for him to die and he has to make the decision who is his inheritance going to go to and who has the status of the firstborn the firstborn gets a double portion, that is twice as much as any other son. He cannot make the son of the loved of the firstborn in a position before the son of the wife he likes less, who is the actual firstborn. And now Chumash must give a reason why he can't make that decision on his own. Why does the birthright go to the son who's born first? Why can't the father decide on his own which wife of his will be the primary wife to receive the status of firstborn? Pasuk Yitzayin, verse 17. But he shall not acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the wife who is less loved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength to that son, that is the son, the Bechor, of the wife he likes less, the right of the firstborn belongs to him, and therefore he cannot change that status. It seems rather strange why the father doesn't have the right to decide who receives the double portion. But I think the way this law is worded can give us a bit of a deeper understanding in regard to what's going on. You can't miss the connection between this law and the story of Yaakov Avinu. Because he had married two wives, and the words Ahuvan Snoah we have by Rachel and Leah, explicitly those words. And we know what happened when Yaakov favored the son of Rachel, who was the Isha Ahuva. She was the loved wife. And of course, Leah, God saw that Leah was liked less. She was the Snoah. And Leah had the child born first. Ruvain was born first. And we know what happened when Yaakov favored Yosef, made him that special coat how that led to a terrible family feud, which was only resolved many years later, and that's the story of Yosef and his brothers. And it could be, based on that story, that the logic of this law is a preventive measure to try to ensure that we do not have family feuds. The second one knows that when one has more than one wife, the father can choose who receives the portion of the firstborn, that may easily lead to sinat chinam. That may easily lead to a fight within the family, that type of fighting is not healthy for society. Therefore, the law has to be clear that once a child is born first, he has the status of the firstborn. And to prevent rivalry and all the probable situations that may arise 
when we know that the status of firstborn is up for grabs, that may result in a very fractured family. And if that happens too often, that will lead to a very fractured society. And therefore, this law, like many laws in Sefer Dvarim, is in the category of a preventive measure to make sure bad things don't happen. Very similar to cities of refuge, to make sure the Goel Adam, the Avenger, doesn't commit a murder that should not happen. When we read the next law, in verse 18, we can give a similar explanation. Pasuk Yitchet, verse 18. Ki yel ish ben sorer umore, enenu shomea, bekol aviv, uvukol imo, v'yisro oto, v'lo yishma lehem. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he does not even listen to anything they say. Pasuk Yitet, verse 19. V'tavsu vo aviv imo, but should his father and mother seize him, and they take him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of the place that he's living in. And they make the following proclamation in front of the elders of the city. Pasachaf, verse 20. And they say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. And he's a glutton and a drunkard. Pasach of Aleph, Urgamu kol anshei yiro b'avanim b'met, u'biyata haram mikirbecha, v'chol Yisrael yishmu v'yirau. Then all the men of the city shall stone this son to death, so that you remove this evil from your midst, so that all of Israel will hear what happened, and they will be fearful of this type of evil behavior. As Rashi points out, this punishment is al-shem sofo. If that's the way he's behaving now, most likely, he's going to cause trouble. And again, it's a type of preventive measure. As he explains, the Torah is recognizing what's going to happen in the future. And most likely, he's going to turn into criminal and cause damage to others. And it's a preventive measure to make sure that this person is not going to ruin our society. We're going to execute him before he gets into bigger trouble. The rabbis understand that a case like this never happened and never will happen. And this is one of the classic cases we find in Chumash which the rabbis say is to learn about it and receive reward for learning about it, but not to put it into practice. What's called Rosh Mekabaskar. The reason why is simple, because how can we take away the possibility that maybe the son one day will repent, and maybe he'll be better. So it could be the reason for studying this law is to realize the need to educate our children properly and to see the writing on the wall when somebody's going on the wrong direction and making sure we do whatever possible to make sure that child goes in the right direction. Knowing and studying this law hopefully would encourage parents to do a better job of raising their children properly. But so this, again, is a law that we can learn from, even though we don't necessarily put it into practice. So this can be considered a law that we can learn values from and appreciate potential from, but not a law that we put into practice. And finally, in verse 22, we have a law of what happens when someone is executed by the court system what do we do with his body? Pasach Abed. V'chi yev v'ish chet mishpat mavet v'humat v'talita oto aritz. Should a man be guilty of a capital offense and put to death on the day that he's executed, you should hang his body up on a tree. In other words, we want the people to see what happened, to put fear in the people, and look what happens when someone goes against the law. However, we can't overdo it. Pasach Abgimu. Verse 23, Do not let his corpse remain on the tree 
overnight. Ki kavor tikbarenu b'yomohu. On the very same day he's executed, he must be buried on that very same day. Ki kilalat Elohim talui. Because this body being hung on the tree is a curse of God. We'll return to this phrase shortly. And you shall not make unclean or defile the land that Hashem your God is giving you as an inheritance. So what is this curse of God? What is this kilalat Elohim that we're worried about? Rashi explains, Because man is made in God's image and Amisro represents God, if a member of Amisro who was executed is being hung, then in many ways that is also an affront to God himself because man is made in God's image. Therefore, when people see that body hanging, on the one hand, they need to remember what happens to people who don't follow God to put them into fear. On the other hand, it is in front of God himself. Therefore, we have to find a balance between those two values and therefore he must be buried within that day and he can only be hung for a short amount of time. Rashbam Rashi's grandson gives a very different explanation. And he says, when people see the person who's hung and ask, why did Beitin execute him? And they realize it was for some religious reason or some technical reason, they'll be angry at the Beitin. They'll be angry at the court who put this person to death and they will curse the court. And Kiladat Elohim is not referring to the curse of God, our creator, but rather they'll curse the court system who put this person to death. And that will lead to lack of respect for the court system. And therefore, again, for the sake of society, in order that we respect our court system, on the one hand, we have to hang his body up after he's executed for a short amount of time, but we don't want to leave it there in order that the people don't say bad things about the court system. So according to Rashbam, again, we find a sort of preventive measure to make sure that bad things don't happen. We're instituting certain laws to make sure that the character of our society will develop in a healthy manner. But in general, the laws that we've seen today are quite difficult to appreciate because they seem to be very severe cases that reflect a society that is quite dysfunctional. On the other hand, Humish realizes the nature of human behavior, and in order to prevent from this type of society developing, we present laws of extreme cases in order that hopefully they will never happen. In tomorrow's class, when we begin chapter 22, we'll find some laws that are a bit more optimistic.